Okay, quickly, um, welcome. Um, you should, all should have gotten an email from me. Where'd your tie go? What happened? Oh, you bum. Uh, <laughs> you should have gotten an email from me uh, earlier in the week. Uh, if you did not, um, just check your junk uh, folder, I guess, or uh, you can email me and I will send it to you. A lot of information in there on stuff that I'll, I'll need if you're hoping to uh, enter the church at Easter. Um, I'm asking if you could respond to that email by March 15th. So you got a couple of weeks uh, before I need that information from you. But uh, please do check that and uh, um, respond when you get a moment. Uh, we talked last week about, um, obviously, the ceremony of the Mass and how to participate well in the celebration of Mass. We also talked about the Sacrament of Confession, which I just heard you ask about, and how to make good use of that sacrament. Again, just a reminder, if you are um, already baptized uh, before you receive the sacrament of reconciliation or of confirmation, uh, we'd recommend very, very strongly that you make good use of the sacrament of reconciliation. If you weren't here last week, you can go back and watch the live stream or the recording of kind of the, the practical ways to make use of the sacrament. There's also a link in that email to a really, really helpful guide to how to make use of the sacrament as well as an examination of conscience. And just one piece of advice that I gave last time, don't be afraid to just write it all out, and you can bring it in and, and read it to the priest as you go to confession. Sometimes if, if you've never gone to the sacrament before, it can be a bit overwhelming, and um, that's usually how I use the sacrament myself, is I'll just write down what I want to confess, and I'll read it and then throw it away afterwards. Um, we offer it here very, very often, all weekend, during the week as well. We also have three priests here who are always happy to make an appointment with you, um, so you can email me to... Meet with me for the sacrament if you would like, or with one of the other priests, I can set you up with one of them. And again, if you just go in and say, I'm, I'm in RCIA, I'm getting ready to be confirmed, this is my first confession, the priest will be very, very happy to walk you through it. So nothing to be nervous about. So I just wanted to check, are there any follow-up questions about what we went over last week or anything I just said? Yes. Uh, if, so on the weekly flock note message that goes out, there's a backlog of all of the previous videos on there. So, yeah. <clears throat> Sweet. Um, yeah, so check that. Look for that email. It already went out. And uh, if you could respond by March 15th, that'd be great. Uh, Lawrence, I got your response. And thanks for filling out the registration thing. So we're all good. Let's pray. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. amen. Almighty God, we thank you for the great gift of your sacraments through which you communicate to us grace, a share in your own divine life. We ask that you would prepare us well for the celebration of the resurrection of the Son and the events by which he redeemed and saved the world. Bless our time together as we come to know you and our, your will for our lives and your plans, plan of salvation more completely, that we might participate in it in our day-to-day -day living. And we ask all of this through Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. All right. Thanks, Larry. All right. Thank you. So I thought I'd start with anything that you want to ask about the Eucharist, and then we'll look at penance. But, yes. I, anybody want to ask anything? <clears throat> Maybe I'll ask things. So, um, so the main things about the Eucharist, the real presence, how he becomes to be present, and so we call that transubstantiation, the sacrifice of the Mass, and Holy Communion. That's too much. So basically, with the Eucharist, there's more than one. Um, there are three mysteries. The first mystery is that he becomes present, right? And that we can... So we went over that two weeks ago, I think. 
But the second mystery is that it makes Calvary present, and we get to offer that. And then the third mystery is we get to receive not a piece of bread, but Jesus. And so the, the first mystery that he's really present is the foundation for the other two. All right? If he's not really present, then it's not really Calvary, and we're just eating bread and not Jesus. Right? But if he's really present, then what's on the altar is the same person who got nailed to the cross who's offering himself today. And then, and we're receiving that same person. All right, does that? So that, so that's why I said, I'm going to start with make sure this is. All right. So when we say that Jesus is really present, we mean that He's really present in a stronger way than He's present in this room. All right. He's present in this room as God. He's present in the Eucharist as man, as well as God. All right. Is that? And that's what's meant by the substantial. Does that make a question on that? So when we say that Jesus is substantially present, we mean he's present not just spiritually or just as he might be present in this room, is present in this room as God, but that he's present with the whole, the substantial means the whole of him and therefore his body as well as his divinity. Okay? And how does that happen? Um, that happens because it's Jesus' words that are being said. And so the priest who celebrates is given it. So we'll talk about holy orders two weeks from now, sacrament of holy orders. Um, but through this sacrament of holy orders, um, a priest like Father um, Povis um, gets, receives a power to act in the person of Christ. In other words, he receives a power for Jesus to act through him. Right? And at the Last Supper, Jesus said, this is my body. And Jesus has power to make it his body. All right? Does that? Because Jesus, at the, at, <clears throat> and together with the Father and the Holy Spirit, at the beginning made the world. Right? Let there be light, and there was the world. There was light. And, and so if he can make the world, he can take something that's already in the world, a piece of bread, and make it into something else. All right? That's how it happens. Right? He said... Take and eat, this is my body, and his words made it so. Right? In other words, we can't do that, right? I can't do that. And this, by the way, this is why nobody can say, I have the right to be a priest. That would be like saying, I have the right to work um, the most awesome miracle, taking one thing and making it another thing. Right? No, and no merely human being can do that, and even the angels can't do it. An angel can't take a piece of bread and make it into Christ's body. And Mary can't do that. She doesn't have that power. She's just a creature. Right? But Jesus had that power. He did it, and he gives that power to his priests. Right? And again, we just have to, we have to believe that. And it's helpful for believing that to see the love behind it. In other words, the reason why he does this is because he wants to be present here. Yeah. I was at the last Sunday, I was telling some of you, I was at a conference and there was um, the mother of a recently beatified, um, Pope Francis beatified him two years ago, I think, um, Blessed Carlo Acutis, who died at 15 from leukemia. 
and he had a huge devotion to the Eucharist. And he would call the, ta- the his local parish, he lived in Milan, Italy, and um, he called his parish Jerusalem. And that's right, in, in, in a sense, right? Because in his parish, just as um, actually in this building above us, is um, a chapel with, with Jesus. And so we've got something here more precious. So his mom offered to take him on a pilgrimage to Israel. And he said, no, I'm not interested. I've got Jerusalem here. Now that, it's fine, it's a good thing to go to Israel. But it was interesting how, um, how strongly, right, that's how we should all um, understand. So if, it's, if Jesus is really here, it makes sense that we would visit him, right? He wants to be here so that we can visit him. And so it's a beautiful practice when you're near, I mean, so I, I remember being in the car with um, a three-year-old girl who um, was well catechized by her parents. So when we would drive past a church, she would wave, hi, Jesus, that's beautiful, right? That's real. He's there, and he's there because he wants us to encounter him. So, what if I put this in here? No. Did I explain two weeks ago that there are, yeah, so that the fancy word transubstantiation, we put that up there? And that there are two miracles? What are the two miracles? Bread becomes his body, the wine becomes his blood. So that would be the, I'm putting those two together as one miracle. And the other miracle is the appearances of the bread and the wine remain, right? And that's a good thing. I mean, they happen simultaneously. All right, how long does Jesus remain? About 10 minutes if we consume him. But if we don't consume him, he'll remain as long as bread would remain in, in a tabernacle. In other words, he re, he's really present as long as the appearances aren't corrupted. Um, the host... The, the consecrated host. They store them in the tabernacle, uh-huh. right, for the next mass. And so they can use them at, an, at a following mass. Right, so you don't, you don't throw them away, right, because it's Jesus, right? He won't be harmed. It's not as if he's going to, you know. And so when the priest breaks the host, it's not as if Jesus is being broken because he's present in a different way, whole and entire, under every part. And so we don't injure Jesus, but we want to show respect for him. So that's why you never throw a host away, but you always consume it. Um, And if a host drops on the ground um, and gets dirty, um, and it gets so dirty that it can't be consumed, then you dissolve it. The priest does that. um, Interesting. So I was mentioning um, this blessed um, Carlo Acutis, who died at 15, he was really interested in Eucharistic miracles. And he made a website. He was interested in computers, too. So he made use of um, his computer science to make a website of Eucharistic miracles. I didn't speak. So it might be useful to know something about them. There have been tons, hundreds of Eucharistic miracles over the centuries in which um, now every, every Eucharist is a miracle and a greater one. But it, when we say a Eucharistic miracle, we mean um, an extraordinary case in which you see um, something. Um, so there have been hosts that have fallen on the ground. There have been, in the last um, uh, 20 years, there have been about 
four or five certified miracles of hosts that have fallen on the ground. A priest has put them to dissolve in, a, in water and come back the following week, and they didn't dissolve, but they turned red and had them analyzed. So one of these cases was in Buenos Aires, um, in a, a parish where um, Pope Francis at that time was the, um, the, um, the archbishop. And um, it didn't dissolve, and in fact, it turned red, and it was tested as heart tissue, um, human heart tissue, and with um, even a blood type, AB blood type, which matches the Shroud of Turin. If you know the, the Shroud of Turin being the burial cloth that Jesus was buried in, which has blood stains on it, and which also has been tested for blood type. And, um, and there's another... Um, holy relic, um, the sudarium, which apparently, or at least according, now we don't have to believe this. We believe it if, if it seems reasonable to us. But that too had the same rare blood type. Anyway, it's just, um, there are lots of Eucharistic miracles, but only recently we've been able to test them for what kind of tissue it is. And in every case that they've tested, it's human heart tissue and the heart muscle. And that makes sense because, yes, Jesus is there whole and entire. It's not just his heart in the Eucharist, right? So don't think that you're doing a cannibalistic heart eating or something. It's the whole Jesus. But it, when, he, when a Eucharistic miracle happens, it's heart flesh to show the reason, right? Jesus is there because of love. And um, the heart is also that organ that pumps the blood throughout the body. And, and the Eucharist is like that in the church. The Eucharist is like the source of graces that make the mystical body live, right? And those of you who are going to be baptized, right, you're going to be entering into that mystical body. Those of you who have already been baptized are already in the mystical body, but you need that um, uh, nourishment coming from, right, the oxygen, as it were, coming from the heart, which is the Eucharist. In one, one of these Eucharistic miracles, a doctor um, saw Oh, another thing, I sh the, um, these, when they've tested the, the flesh, not only is it heart muscle, but it has white blood cells in it, which indicate a heart that was under great trauma and stress. And then a really odd thing is white blood cells can't live, I mean, they don't live in a dead organ, and they travel from other parts of the body to get to a place of trauma. And so if there are white blood cells, it's as if you had a living heart. Uh, I, these are, they're unusual, right? They're miracles, but um, yeah, yeah, so they were hosts that had been consecrated, and for the m m half of them, um, they were, they had fallen on the ground and gotten dirty and were, um, the, the idea was to dissolve them, because for what reason, the reason we said before, Jesus is present in the consecrated host until the appearances of the consecrated host are no longer there. So the normal way, you, so you can't throw it away, right? You can either consume it or dissolve it. And so when it totally dissolves, it's no longer um, the real presence there. So that's what they were trying to do when these miracles happened. Okay. You have to know, what do they do in the they Yeah. Human, like, heart yeah, so they, they get preserved in a reliquary for the adoration of the faithful. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So Buenos Aires is maybe the most famous of the recent cases. It was from 1992 and 1996. 
But there was a, um, a case in Mexico in 2007 and others in Poland, two in Poland, 2013, I think. And I mean, so these are recent, last 10 years. Um, and those are only the ones that have been confirmed by the, the local bishop and tested. There was a, the most famous one is from the, seventh cent, from the 8th century, 730 or 40, in Italy, Lanciano. Yes, that's the most famous Eucharistic miracle. That it was, um, in this case, it was a priest who had doubts about the real presence, um, a, um, a monk. And um, while he was celebrating, he saw the blood coming out of the host. And he stopped the celebration, conserved it, and it still exists. We have today, um, the blood is five coagulated lumps, and the body is um, also conserved. And it looks just like, I mean, it looks the shape of a consecrated host, but it's hollow. It's as if it had um, uh, contracted. So doctors who've examined it um, speculate rigor mortis that it, um, but in any case, you can, it's been for 13, for a, over a thousand years, it's open to the adoration of the faithful. Lots of people make a pilgrimage to the town of Lanciano. And that also they examined, all right, 13, I mean, that's, Seems crazy to examine um, a specimen that's 1,300 years old. But they were able to identify the blood type, and it was AB, and it was human heart tissue. That's what they found. They didn't find any white blood cells in that one. Anyway, so it's, that, it's, it's beautiful, it's fascinating, but the reason to believe in the Eucharist is because Jesus said so. He said, this is my body. Right? And it makes sense that he would work miracles to confirm that, especially when, um, uh, when sometimes people have doubts. Yeah. And several of the most famous miracles were when priests had doubts. So that was one, Lanciano. And another one was um, also in Italy, in Bolsena. It was the year before the Pope instituted the Feast of Corpus Christi. And it was a priest who was in this town called Bolsena, which um, was right next to where the Pope was living at that time in Orvieto and uh, the neighboring village, and um, a similar thing. Priest didn't believe, he had doubts, um, he was asking for faith, and the host starts bleeding, and the blood dripped onto the corporal, that's the, um, the linen cloth, and then onto the uh, marble floor um, and altar. And the blood stains are still there today. You can, if anyone takes a, um, a visit to Bolsena for the blood stains, and Orvieto where they keep the, the linen cloth. Anyway, the Pope was in the next town, and he, um, witnessed this, and the following year um, instituted the Feast of Corpus Christi that we celebrate um, after Easter, um, after Pentecost every year. Often they're Eucharistic processions, right, to commemorate. Questions on that? Yeah, so you wouldn't want to receive a miraculous host like that, but you would conserve it. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. That can celebrate. Right. That's right. Yeah, no, great question. Did everybody hear the question? 
Uh, so orthodox is different, right? So the orthodox um, Eucharist is always valid, right? And that's because they have valid, what I mean by valid is they have real holy orders. In other words, they've conserved what we call apostolic succession. I'm going to explain that in two weeks. But they've basically, um, we can see in the Gospels, in the Acts of the Apostles, that the apostles, like St. Paul, they ordained successors, Right? So St. Paul, when he was in a given place, right, he appointed Timothy to be his successor in Ephesus and Titus to be um, the bishop of Crete. And they ordained other, and he told them um, basically to ordain other approved men. And, to, and we call that apostolic succession, where the apostles appointed successors, appointed successors, and Pope Francis is the 200, I don't know the number, something like 266th, but I might be behind the times, and successor of Peter, right? And Protestant churches didn't believe in that. They denied that holy orders was a sacrament, and therefore they dispensed with um, apostolic succession. Martin Luther was a priest, and so his Eucharist would have been valid. But um, to be ordained a priest, you need a bishop to ordain you. And so they, and the Lutheran church lost that lineage, and as Anglicans thought they had it, but... Um, they also lost that succession um, in the first uh, 100 years of the um, Reformation. And so um, Orthodox have valid holy orders and valid Eucharist, and Catholics obviously, but not the other Protestant denominations. All right, why shouldn't you go? Um, you can, right? It wouldn't, it's not as if what you would be receiving is just bread and wine. Um, it would just be the danger of giving scandal. And the scandal would be, you might be sending a message, oh, I think it's the same receiving communion here as receiving in the Catholic Church. And so to avoid leading people to think something that I, is not what I think and what I believe, I would not receive. And it also is a way of showing respect for their traditions, right? Because Lutherans also wouldn't want me to be receiving if I didn't believe in the way that they understand it. Does that make sense? Yeah, great question. And does that answer your question about, yeah. So the Orthodox, that, and so um, we can go to Mass, if, suppose if we're traveling and we're in uh, Russia or, or someplace where I can't get to a Catholic Mass for sun, my Sunday Mass obligation, yes, I can go to an Orthodox church. Just that they don't, uh, that would be okay with us, but I don't think they would welcome us. But, but um, and vice versa, they can come to a Catholic Mass. But again, they, I don't think, would permit that of their faithful. But we would permit it of them. Okay? And that's precisely because it's the same Mass, the same Jesus, and we have the same faith about the Eucharist. But not with Protestants, right? So with Protestants, we don't have the same, same faith about it. For the most part, they don't believe in the real presence. Some do. That would be more conservative Lutherans. So Missouri Synod Lutherans believe in the real presence. We just don't think that they have it. And that's what's tragic. Um, and the reason why they don't have it is not because they don't have the right faith in it, but because you need the minister who's been validly ordained. Whereas most Protestants don't believe in the real presence, and they just think it's a symbol of um, justification by faith and of, of um, unity. Question on that? Uh, let me say something about the, the sacrifice of the Mass. So, the Mass 
Jesus um, into the Eucharist so that he could be with us, but also that, so that we could be at Calvary. And um, all right, we weren't at Calvary, but he wanted us to be able to offer him as his mother did. So on Calvary, who was there? Right? Mary and John. And Jesus wanted his mother to be there, right? Obviously, that would have been incredibly painful. I mean, you might have rather spare her from the sight of seeing her husband slowly, her husband, her son slowly um, die from crucifixion. But he wanted her there because he wanted her to offer him. Why is that? Because Jesus' sacrifice on Calvary is the one perfect sacrifice prefigured in every sacrifice of Israel, in every sacrifice of every pagan religion. Um, and it's good for us to offer something to God. The problem is, what am I going to offer to God? I don't have anything good enough to offer to God. But Jesus is good enough to offer to his Father. That's why he, in, that's the principal reason he instituted the Eucharist, is to give us something precious, infinitely precious, to offer to his Father. And we offer it for four reasons. I think we talked about this too, right? Acts, adoration, contrition, thanksgiving, and supplication. And, so we give, and then he wants us to offer our lives. So I don't know if you looked at last um, week when you went through the, the liturgy of the Eucharist. Right after the consecration. So we can, when, when should I do this? Right? So all of us are supposed to offer Jesus to the Father. And you might ask, when do I do that? Um, anytime you think of it is... A good enough answer. And so there's no one time, it doesn't matter that much. But the offertory is a good time. Right? So at the offertory, when they go around and you put something in the collection box, some, right? not every church does that, COVID stopped doing that. But um, it, in, yes, I can put it, you know, $20 in the collection basket. But what Jesus wants is something a lot more important. So he wants me to put my heart in the collection basket, as it were. Or when the gifts are brought up to the altar, somebody usually brings um, often it's a couple, and bringing the bread and the wine that will be used in the Mass. That's another time when I can think about putting my life and my week there and bringing that up to the altar. And then when he's consecrating, I should be offering myself also and offering him like Mary. So the best, my advice is to think about what was Mary doing when she was standing at the foot of the cross. She was offering her son for the sins of the world, even though it like that, um, broke her heart. And so we're likewise to offer him, even though we're not ordained. So only the ordained priest can say those words, this is my body, and it becomes his body. So that's the ministerial priest, a technical term. Ministerial priesthood is the priest who's ordained has holy orders. We, or we who are already baptized or those who are about to be baptized will become his royal priests. Baptism and confirmation make us priests in a different sense. So it's often called the common priesthood or the royal priesthood. And priesthood means you offer something. All right, I'm not a ministerial priest, but I'm a royal priest. Sorry, I can't. That's pretty cool. <laughs> No, I mean that. It's, it's glorious. We don't realize the dignity we have. Right? To be a royal priest means I get to offer to God the Father 
the most glorious thing in the universe, and that's Jesus. It's not just the priest who's offering him, but all of us are called to join in the offering, and we do it in our hearts. We don't have to say anything. I don't have to say any formula, but I should be offering Jesus to his Father and myself with him. All right? And I've got a bunch of slides about that somewhere in here. It's all the way at the end. Yeah, so in one of the things the priest says at the offertory, um, or in the, in the um, Eucharistic prayers, we offer you this sacrifice of praise, or they, that is us, all the faithful, offer it for themselves and all who are dear to them. So when we um, make our act of spiritual offering, we can be offering um, for our own needs and for everyone that we love and everyone we want, let's say we have um, you know, relatives, friends, and children and parents who are not members of the faithful, who, who don't go to church. We can be offering it for them and for you know, all the, everything we have in our heart, for our country, for the world, for you know, peace in, in Ukraine and the Middle East, or whatever is on your heart, and you can offer that up. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Christ, is that the same as putting, uh, ending my prayers in his name? Is that the same thing? It's not exactly the same. So whenever we pray, we want to say in Jesus' name. So that's something, a prayer that I'm offering here. But um, when we do it at Mass, I'm not just offering a prayer, but I'm offering Jesus' sacrifice made present on the altar. Right? That's what we're offering. So it's a special thing. It's different in that sense. It's bigger Right? And this is part of the tragedy of the Protestant world, is that, yes, we have that in common. We can offer our prayers in Jesus' name. That's great. But what is a special glory of the baptized faithful is we get to join in offering Calvary to the Father. All right, somebody can make an... I'm surprised nobody's made an objection. Here, objection. Why do we need to do that if Jesus already offered it 2,000 years ago? Responsibility. Yeah, great. We're priests. It would be pretty silly to be a priest and have nothing to offer. And so it's the dignity. So this is one of the merits of Martin Luther is that he spoke a lot about the common priesthood, right? And rightly so. But the problem is the common priesthood needs to is you have to be active. Yeah, <laughs> and active not in the sense that I get up in the altar in the sanctuary and say things, but active in this interior sense of offering my life and what I do outside of mass. Right? In other words, um, it's, what, it's my week that I want to bring there. And of course, yes, all of our weeks have imperfections in them. And so that's why there's sacrament of confession. But it's also we can offer um, our sorrow for those sins and our desire, most importantly, to, um, to conform more with Jesus. And that desire that we can, we can think of putting it on the altar when the gifts are brought up there, the, our desires. Yeah. Right, so here, this is a famous line from the Second Vatican Council. Taking part in the Eucharistic sacrifice, 
which is the source and summit of the whole Christian life. The faithful offer the divine victim to God and offer themselves along with him. That's the two things we're offering. And we don't have to you know, mentally distinguish them, but we're offering Jesus to the Father and we're offering our lives. Right? And that's our priesthood. And if, so why is it the same? So this is something that at the um, at the Reformation was a very hot question. Um, so Catholics have always believed that it, the Mass is a sacrifice and the same sacrifice. And this is something that all Protestants rejected. Right? So with regard to the real presence, Luther accepted it, other Protestants didn't. But with regard to the sacrifice of the Mass, basically the whole Reformation rejected it. But I think it was really tragic because it too is part of Jesus's gift of love. It was because he loves us, he wants to be present. But because he loves us, he wants us to be with Mary at the foot of the cross, even though we lived 1,990 years too late, um, but to be there um, at the foot of the altar, as it were. In other words, around the altar. And so why is it the same sacrifice? It's the same sacrifice because it's the same Jesus who's the same victim today and 2,000 years ago. And because it's the same priest. All right, it looks like Father Povis, not Jesus. But that's why, why we said he's ordained to act in the person of Christ. All right, does that make, make sense? So it's, why is it the same sacrifice? Because we've got the same victim, Jesus, and the same priest. But obviously there's a difference, right? And the difference is he died then and he doesn't die today. It was bloody then and it's unbloody today, meaning not resulting in a violent death. Okay. So the manner of offering is different. Questions on that? So in the matter, I don't know if Father Povis explained this, um, before the um, consecration, the priest does a gesture where he holds out his hands and invokes the Holy Spirit. So we actually, he invokes the Holy Spirit for two purposes. The one is to transform the bread and the wine into Jesus' body and blood. That's the easy part because bread and wine don't resist. They simply do what God says. The hard part is the second, and that is the Holy Spirit is invoked to transform our hearts, to make them into unity, right? So there's so many, basically sin divides, right? Sin causes um, division in families and countries and societies, and um, unity is the hardest thing. And so the Holy Spirit is invoked to bring us into deeper communion with one another. I think how many families um, need that um, healing? Um, how many, um, societies, right? yeah. whether it's on the local level or the international level. Yeah. And to offer us, basically, to make us into an offering. So the Holy Spirit, and the priest invokes the Holy Spirit to make us an eternal offering to you. Right, so that's from the third Eucharistic prayer. Any other questions about the Eucharist? So after receiving communion, it's a great time to do a 
um, Thanksgiving because we're all tabernacles for about 10 minutes, right, until our, our, until he gets digested. Thank you. When we receive communion, right, we're receiving Jesus, and, but we're receiving him in a way different than other food. I don't know if I mentioned this. Um, other food we, get, we convert into our bodies, um, but when we receive communion, we're receiving Jesus so that we get converted into him. But it doesn't happen overnight or in, in those 10 minutes, and that's why frequent communion is a really good thing. In other words, it happens day by day. Um, year by year, right? So it's spiritual nourishment. He's feeding us with himself so that we can live his life, but we have to cooperate. And this is why everyone who receives communion receives the same Jesus, but not everyone benefits equally. Why is that? Because if we have more desire to receive him, we'll be made more into him through the force of our desire. It's not as if, you know, we're doing this. It's Jesus who's doing it. The Holy Spirit is doing it. But um, desire makes us able to cooperate with his love. Right? So um, 100 people receive communion. Everyone receives the same Jesus, but everyone receives a different grace proper to our heart. Right? It's personalized. Like the manna. So remember the manna in the desert? Everyone received just enough for their family. Didn't matter if you gathered a lot or a little. All right, any other questions about the Eucharist? Should I go on to the sacrament of penance? Do we, so Father, it doesn't matter if we receive under one species or under two or both. It's a fuller sign if we receive under both, but we receive the same Jesus equally. All right, sacrament of penance. So uh, Father's explained something of this too, no? So Jesus instituted um, two sacraments, um, penance, which is often called confession, same thing, right? Or it actually has a third name, reconciliation, penance, or confession, means exactly the same thing, right? Um, and anointing of the sick, both of them are for healing of sins. Um, penance is the one more commonly, right? So I'm going to focus on penance. All right, so penance, reconciliation, sacrament of forgiveness, sacrament of confession, sacrament of conversion, all different names for the same thing. Anybody know when did Jesus institute it? He promises it earlier, but he actually institutes it on Easter Sunday. It's John chapter 20. Um, so he's just, um, he rose that morning, he's walked through the, the locked door of the upper room where they were, the 12, the 11 were praying, and he breathes on them, and he says, receive the Holy Spirit, whose sins you forgive, 
are forgiven them. Whose sins you retain are retained. Uh, what's he talking about? He's talking about the sacrament of penance. And he was given to the apostles the power to be ministers of penance or confession. Right? Whose sins you forgive are forgiven. Whose sins you retain will be retained. In other words, absolution is how he, um, whose sins you remit, that would be um, absolution, I absolve you, in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Um, but um, he'll give us a penance. And that's, um, um, yeah, so something is um, binding on us. It might be to say, you know, in Our Father or Three Hail Marys or, or something usually very minimal. That would be something that we do. But then what God does is forgives our sin. All right, why, why do we need this sacrament? So this is like the most obvious thing in the world. The reason why we need this sacrament is because baptism doesn't make us impeccable. No, it doesn't make it impossible to sin. And, and so we're subject to temptation after baptism just as before baptism. And so there needs to be some way by which grave sins that we commit after baptism can be forgiven. And so it's, it's very... Um, Fitting, it's very necessary, it's very beautiful that Jesus gave us this kind of a remedy. It's like, um, uh, all right, birth, so baptism is the sacrament of birth by which you come into the world, right? And then confirmation is sacrament of growth, the Eucharist sacrament of nourishment, and that would be fine if we never got sick. But in our, um, in our natural life, in addition to birth, growth, and nourishment, we need medicine. And so in our spiritual life, likewise. All right, does that make sense? And again, this is a difference with the Protestant world, right? For the Protestant world doesn't have this, doesn't recognize this sacrament. Although Luther was actually very attached to it. And he, um, he was of two minds about um, accepting it as a sacrament or not. And in fact, um, he accepted it as something that can be consoling, right? It can be consoling to say one's sins and hear the... Um, the priest's words, I absolve you. But what he denied was the necessity of it that Catholics would hold, that it's something that we need if we're aware of grave sins. All right? All right, so he instituted Easter's. Oh, so that's beautiful in itself, right? So um, confession can be somewhat traumatic when you're waiting in the confession lot. Yes, I see. Look of sympathy, of empathy there. Um, it, but it's beautiful afterwards, right? When you leave the confession box, it's a beautiful feeling, usually, right? Most of the time. Um, it can be, right, stressful when you're waiting in that line. Um, and it makes sense. This is an Easter gift. Jesus through the sacrament, not on Good Friday, but on Easter Sunday, right? It's a way of sharing his triumph a way of forgiving our sins that weigh us down. Um, it's a human thing. Um, I used to, uh, the preceding pastor um, died of cancer, Monsignor Pins was his name, and I would, so before um, Monsignor Breyer, I would teach this with him, and he would um, come in and he would give a pastoral example at the beginning and end of every class, and he gave a beautiful one for penance. It was one of his classmates at the seminary, did I tell you this story? Um, left after the college. So um, at the seminary, there's a college program, and then there's four more years of the theology. And so one of his classmates left after the college program and just um, didn't think he had a vocation and worked as a bartender. 
And then after a year working as a bartender, he came back to the seminary. And so Monsignor Pins asked him, you know, why'd you come back? And he said, well, as a bartender, I heard tons of confessions. And all I could do was pour another drink. But as a priest, you can absolve someone, take them away. You can see from this that it's a human need, right? If we wait, sin, it's like a weight on us, on our shoulders. And there's a human need even to, you know, to unburden oneself. But the problem is, how do I find somebody I can trust who cares about me and won't, you know, tell it to other people? And so a beautiful thing about confession is that the priest who we confess to is there for no other reason than that Jesus wants to unburden us. And he's bound by um, a, an obligation of secrecy greater than any other that exists in any human society, right? Even you know, a therapist or a lawyer has um, confidentiality, but the priest has a far greater level of confidentiality. He can't reveal it for anything in the world. Right? And so that's a... Um, Okay, so this sacrament corresponds to something that was already always there in human, um, in human life, and that is there's always a need for interior repentance. Everyone who's sinned needs to do something interiorly in the heart, and that is say, I'm sorry, right? Just as we would. So it's really helpful, I think, in understanding confession to make a comparison with human relations, especially you know, husband, wife, or parents and children. Um, if I offend my wife gravely, God forbid, um, the first thing I have to be is what? Sorry. Right? If I'm not sorry, nothing else is going to help the situation. So I have to be sorry, first of all. But then the second thing, I better say something, and I better apologize. And then third, um, least important perhaps, but still important, I should do something extra to show that I'm sorry, right? like by you know, whatever it might be, flowers or something, whatever. And of course, that's going to fall short depending on what I did. But it's still something, some way of making satisfaction, some way of healing the harm that I caused. All right, so does everybody see? Those are the three things there. Apology, no, I'm sorry. First thing is being sorry. Apology is second. And the third is doing something to make satisfaction, to make up for it. It's the same with God. So every sin, we offend somebody who loves us and loves us more than our spouse and our parents, infinitely more. So that's the first thing, is waking up to what I did, right? I offended my father who loves me. And so I'm sorry. And then the second thing, I'm sorry inside my heart, right? But the second thing is it makes sense to apologize. That's what the... So, Without this sacrament, we'd be stuck with just the first thing, saying in my heart, I'm sorry. And that's the most important. That's always good. Right? That's very good. But it's beautiful, actually, that we have this sacrament because it enables me, us to do the second and third piece. Not only to be sorry in my heart, but to say it out loud um, to Jesus. So when you go to confession... Um, obviously, it's not Jesus sitting there. It's Father Povis or you know, some other, Monsignor Breyer. But he's acting in the person of Christ. And so I, can, I, I should think I'm saying this to Jesus. 
So when you go to confess, this is my advice, just pretend it's Jesus there. Um, obviously, you know it's, it's a priest representing Jesus. But that's the way to think about it. Um, all right, Jesus already knows what we did. So I'm not telling him to inform him. I'm telling him because it's good for me to tell him because I offended him and he loves me. And then he'll give me, through the priest, some way of doing satisfaction. What's so beautiful is I might think, you know, boy, what I did was really bad. I'm going to fast for, you know, um, I, I might, right? And the priest gives me three Hail Marys. <laughs> All right, that seems unequal, but that's okay, right? That's, um, that's what I have to do, so I'll do that. Um, so that's what called the penance very often, the, um, the penance or the work of satisfaction. And it might be, you know, an Our Father. It might be an Our Father, Hail Mary, Glory Be. It might be praying the rosary. And it might be some other prayer. If the priest gives you a prayer that you don't know, for example, the priest might give you, pray the memorari. And if you don't know what he's talking about, what should you do? Ask him, what's that? Where can I find that? Right? Um, and he'll tell you or he'll give you something else that you know. Sometimes a priest gives um, just simply praying in the church for someone for five minutes, yeah. or, or whatever it might be. Sometimes it's an act of service. So with the hardest penance I ever got was um, I had to do a surprise party for my wife. Um, <laughs> so that was a harder penance than normally gets assigned. Um, but the, um, yeah, that was a good thing. Um, I had questions on... Right, so basically, we do the par our part in the sacrament of penance is those three things. First, I have to be sorry. That's before I get in there. And we call that the, so I make an act of, I make an examination of conscience. I'll talk about that in a minute. And then I, I say I'm sorry in my heart. That's what I should do before I go into the confessional. All right? Then once I get into the confessional, it's the second act, and that's the confession. Did Father walk you through this a little bit? It, yeah. So it's helpful to say something about, you know, it's been, this is my first confession, or it's been, you know, a month since my last, or it's been 10 years, or, or whatever um, it is the case. That just, because it, it makes a difference here in confession, whether it's somebody who goes every two weeks or somebody who hasn't been for 10 years. And then you just say your sins. And my advice is start with what's most on your heart. You don't have to, it doesn't make a difference. But if you start with the hard part, then it gets easier. If he gives you a penance, you want to do what he gives you because, um, just simply because he gave it to you. In general, no. No, the best prayer in general is from your own words. In general. Right? Maybe I'll talk about it if I have time in the last class. So we call that mental prayer, when I'm just praying from my mind in my own words. Um, and that's going to be the best because that's what will be most spontaneous. But it's, it can be good to use a particular prayer like the Our Father if we want to pray together with other people, say praying in the family, praying like the rosary. But praying from our heart with our own words is the best because that's making most from you. Does that make sense? But usually the priest won't give you that. He'll give you some particular prayer. And that's a really good thing. Because then some people are scrupulous. I don't know if is that, did I, did that ring a bell with anybody? Scrupulosity is when a person gets overly concerned about being in sin. And um, very often 
a scrupulous person can worry, did I really do my penance? Um, he told me to say in Our Father, but I was distracted. And so I maybe do it, you know, a hundred times. Um, no, you don't need to do that, right? Once is enough. Just do what the penance was and you're done. All right. The, yeah, so what are the acts of the penitent? So there are three acts of the penitent, we just said. Contrition. So I need to start by examining my conscience. Right? So that's like a preliminary. Um, and then I say I'm sorry, then I make the confession, and then I do the satisfaction. Sometimes it happens that you walk out of the confessional and you can't remember what the priest told you to do. Right? Let's say he told you you're our father. All right, I walk out of there. Wow, I just blanked out completely. What if somebody's already, you know, if, if there's nobody in confessional, then I can go back and ask him. But if there's somebody already in there, I can't interrupt to ask, did you give me, you know, an Our Father? Just do what you're normally given, is my advice. It doesn't, right? You don't, don't worry about it. Um, all that counts is that you intended to do what the priest told you to do, even if you forgot it. Right? It doesn't make your confession invalid if you don't actually do it. You should do it, right? But, but if you forgot what it was or you simply forgot, um, the confession is still good. Okay, what sins have to be confessed? This is the hard part. Um, so here, this is the distinction between mortal sins and venial sins. And this is unfamiliar generally for Protestants because that was part of Luther's um, rationale for, for not recognizing confession as necessary was that he didn't distinguish mortal sin from venial sin. But it's just common sense, right? We've talked about this lots of times. Three conditions for a mortal sin. It's got to be something. What are the three conditions? Anybody? It, it's got to be grave matter. You have to know it. And you have to do it deliberately. All right? And so, yes, that's really, I mean, it's elementary, but you, that's really practical. It's got to, so let's say I am, um, yeah, I got impatient with my wife. All right, that's not grave matter. So I don't have to confess that. Um, but if I committed adultery, that's grave matter. I have to confess that. Right, that's a mortal sin. And obviously, I can't not know that that's a mortal sin. And it's very hard to not do that deliberately. Um, all right? So, um, but there can be cases where a person's unsure. Um, if you're in doubt, um, especially if you think that you're a scrupulous person, the rule is if you're in doubt, you didn't do it. Right? And you don't have to confess it. You only have to confess it if you're sure that you did it and that it hit those three um, conditions. That makes sense to everyone? It's helpful to know something about yourself, right? Because there are some people who are the opposite. Some people are lax. And so for a lax person, right, if you think you did it, you probably did it. But if you're a scrupulous person, if you're unsure, then you didn't do it. It's only grave sins that we have to confess, right? The grave is the same as mortal. It's good to confess venial sins, but it's not necessary. Um, but what, what is necessary is to confess mortal sins. And so here's the difficulty. Mortal sins should be confessed in their kind and approximate number. All right, that's easy if you're confessing you know, once a month. 
But if it's been 10 years since your last confession, that might be hard. Don't worry about it, right? Don't worry about it. Just say what's on your heart, right? So let's deal with the kind. So the kind means what kind of a thing. And um, so if I just say um, I um, lied, that's actually not giving enough of the kind because they're all different kinds of lies, right? There are white lies that are, you know, maybe not a sin at all. There are calumnies that are very grave sins, right? And so that's why to be the kind, it has to be more than I just, I lied. It would be, I lied and somebody got hurt by it. Or I lied maliciously to detract from somebody's reputation, right? That, do you, do you see, that, that actually makes the kind because just simply you lied doesn't make it clear what, um, what kind of a thing you did. But you don't need to give any unnecessary details just to get, it's like, it's like you're at the zoo. All right, that's a turtle, right? That's a cow. Um, it's enough to say what it was, right? It's hardest for sexual sins. But here too, I mean, I, so sometimes, I think in the past, people would say three against the sixth. But again, the problem is sixth commandment covers a lot of different things. And so it's helpful to get the kind to say something more specific. I'm sorry, this, um, you want it, nothing unnecessary detail, especially in sexual matters, right? No unnecessary, um, but it's just simply to say, I committed adultery, which is different than fornication, which is different than masturbation, which is different than looking at pornography, something like that. And then the um, approximate number, and the reason for that is it makes a difference if I did it a thousand times or I did it once, right? If I did it once, it's obviously a sin of weakness, and that's a much less, um, it's, that's a lot easier to confess than something I've done a thousand times, all right? And it's not necessary to get the right number there. It's enough that you give some um, sense this was something I did frequently or not frequently, all right? So, so it, this is the hardest part about confession, kind and number. Um, and if you didn't do that in, in a past confession, don't worry about it, right? If you didn't know, you had to. Uh, and um, what about things that you have forgotten? Um, suppose you, um, some of you have to make a confession. If you're baptized as babies, right, and you're making a confession now, like it's 30 years or 40 years, um, and you can't remember lots of things, don't worry about it, right? Again, same rule. Say what's on your heart. All right, does that make sense to everyone? Um, and um, if you forgot something and afterwards you remember it, it got forgiven together with the things you mentioned. You can say in your next confession, but not with anxiety. It got forgiven. All right, does that make sense to everyone? It's actually good to say it in your next confession. Right, I forgot, you know, there was an adultery, I forgot. Um, I was sorry for it, but I, I forgot it. And I, uh, it shouldn't be something I would forget. What? Okay, just an example. All right, so this is yeah. What if you later remember? All right, it was already forgiven, and you can receive Holy Communion, right? So you shouldn't think, oh, I forgot this murder, and uh, but but I'm sorry for it, and I would have said it if I'd remembered it. I can, go to conf- I can go to communion. I don't have to um, immediately go back to confession. But your next confession, you should confess it, right? And precisely the way that I forgot this, um, but, but then I remembered.
Don't worry about it. All right? Okay. Um, for venial sins, um, it's good to confess them because most, hopefully, um, if a person's going, so my recommendation is go um, to confession frequently. That means not just the church only requires us once a year. Right? That's the minimum requirement. Same as Holy Communion. But it would be foolish to just go to Holy Communion you know, on Easter Day. Right? It's, if you church every Sunday, why not receive communion every Sunday? And so it's something similar with confession. Church only requires once a year, but it does require us, if we're aware of mortal sin, to go to confession before we receive Holy Communion again. All right? Um, but what if I'm not aware of a mortal sin? Praise be God. Right? Um, it's still good to go to confession. And if people only went to confession for mortal sins, there would be a, um, a disadvantage to that. Um, if I'm only going to more, uh, confession when I've committed mortal sin, my wife sees me in the confession line and says, what did you do? Um, and so it's really helpful that we can go to confession without a mortal sin. And so if my wife sees me, well, he's just confessing venial sins. He got impatient with me um, this week. Right? And that's, it's really good to, so if I only have um, venial sins, that is, right, I didn't, you know, murder or adultery, um, it's still good to confess what I struggle with the most. Everybody has something different that they struggle with because of our temperament and history, right? Because of it, so my wife is choleric. And so she, and that's the kind of thing that she frequently, I imagine, I, I don't know, I never heard her confessions, but I, I can imagine that would be, whereas somebody else might have a different temperament and it might be something else, right? Whether it's you know, lust, impatience, um, sloth, and everybody's got something that they work on because of our personal temperament. And so you start that, right? And confess, it's not necessary to confess all our venial sins because there are probably lots of them. And it's enough to confess, say, three. I'm just throwing that out of hat. It doesn't matter. Or even one that I'm actually working on. That's what's important is that let's say I'm confessing and being impatient with my wife, that I got some plan to be more patient and I'm working on it, right? And so that's what's helpful to bring confession because Jesus will give us a grace to combat what we confess, right? So I should confess what I'm actually um, wanting to be healed in. Right? Does that make sense? It's a beautiful way of strengthening us. All right, act of contrition. So the priest will ask you, say an act of contrition. You can say anything here. There doesn't have to be any set formula. Usually he'll have a little formula in the confessional for you to say. And so this is a standard one. Oh my God, I'm heartily sorry for having offended thee. So that's the most important thing, right? I'm sorry because I offended you, God. Um, I detest my sins. And then this gives two reasons. Because I don't want to go to hell because of your just punishments. But most of all, because they offend you, my God, who loved me. Um, and that's, that difference right there, if, if it's, I'm only in the confessional because I don't want to go to hell, we call that imperfect contrition. But if I, in addition to not wanting to go to hell, um, I am sorry because I've offended God, we call that perfect contrition. And it doesn't mean it, I did it perfectly. It just means that in addition to not wanting to go to hell, I'm sorry because I offended God who loves me. Right? It's reasonable to think that that's going to be part of our contrition. Right? That's why it's part of this formula. And then I, f I have to resolve to break with it. Thank you. 
seeing me about to trip there. Um, I have to resolve to avoid it in the future, right? So I can't um, go to confession and confess, I don't know, um, pornography or something with a plan to do it tomorrow or next week. Or if I'm having an affair, I can't go and confess adultery if I'm still planning to um, continue that affair, right? That's the hard part about contrition. It's making a resolve to break with the sins that I'm, I'm confessing, right? So I firmly resolve, obviously not with my own strength, but with the help of your grace to sin no more, right? Because we all know our own strength is nothing in this matter. Temptation comes and will fall if we're just relying on our strength. And so that's why it's the grace of Jesus, right, that will help us. So I resolve with the help of your grace to sin no more, no more and to avoid the near occasions of sin. Uh, what does that mean? Near occasion is um, an occasion in which normally, looking back at my life, I fall. That's a near occasion. In other words, um, take an alcoholic. Um, when he has the first drink in a bar, that's a near occasion for getting drunk, right? Because for the alcoholic, um, that um, normally will result in not being able to control himself. That's not a near occasion of sin for somebody else, right? So it depends on the person. Something might be a near occasion for me because I have a habit, right? Some people have a habit of pornography, and certain things will be a near occasion for them that they'll know about that aren't an occasion for somebody else, right? And therefore, you have to resolve to avoid not just the sin, but the near occasion, right? Because if I don't resolve to avoid the near occasion, I'm going to fall again. And therefore, that shows I don't really have a, a good resolve. Right? Not every near occasion, though, can be avoided. It's only the voluntary near occasions that we have to avoid. For example, it could be that there are cases where a person has been um, um, divorced without an annulment, got remarried, um, and has children with the second marriage, and then has a conversion experience, wants to come back to practice the Catholic faith, and their second spouse they're not rightly married to. But they can't separate because they have children. And it's good for the children that they, both parents, remain together. All right, in a case like this, um, that might be a near occasion of sin for me, but it's not voluntary if there's an important reason for me to be there. And so I can count on the grace of God to help me in a case like that. Um, but if there's no reason for me to be there, right, if I'm living with somebody that I'm not married to and there's nothing holding me there, then a near, that would be a near occasion and I should leave. Does that make sense? So again, it's going to be different in every, in every circumstance. It's, re, it's really just common sense. It's knowing what makes it, if I'm resolved to break with sin, I've got to have some plan basically. And I've got to be re realistic, but not scrupulous. Scrupulous is overly fearful. Okay. Anyway, it's not necessarily any, any particular phrase. You can simply say, Lord Jesus, Son of the living God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And that's a good act of contrition. Right? So there's no one formula. We do have a copy of yeah. 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 And that's the easiest thing, right? Just say what's there. Any other questions on? My advice is to do your penance soon, just so that, but again, if you forget to do it, then you're still forgiven. 
right? You can still go to confession, uh, Holy Communion. Yeah, so strongly re- recommended to give venial sins. And that's helpful in an examination. So it's a great way, practice to do an examination of conscience before going to bed. It doesn't have to be before going to bed, but it's, it's helpful if it's a daily thing. And just so that you get, um, that makes it so much easier to prepare for a confession. Right? If I have a sense of what are the things that I've done, um, um, you, now it may well be after doing examinations for years, I only have to do one minute or 30, I mean, it comes right, I'm pretty aware of what I've done during that day. But if it requires more time, you know, three or four minutes, um, that's fine. But it's good in doing an examination of conscience to not just do the negative. It's helpful to look at the day and to ask the Holy Spirit to show me where the Lord was present and not just where he was absent, right? In other words, to ask to, to see the graces of the day as well as the sins of the day and to thank him for the graces and then to say, I'm sorry for the sins. Right? That makes a more balanced spiritual life. And it's good to, again, you probably know the kind of thing, just as I was saying, everybody struggles against something different. And so it's not necessary to, do, to give in a long examination of things that aren't my problem, right? It's... I want to make an examination that's tailored to me. Okay. There are good, um, I forgot to bring them, but if anybody wants a, a sheet with an examination of conscience, there are some good ones um, online. I'll bring them next time. The, um, the United States Bishops Conference on their website, they've got several examinations of conscience. So for married people, for single people, for teenagers, for um, even f- for children, it would it makes sense that you would have a different um, examination tailored to the kind of person. Um, an example might be, so an interesting thing, so we talked about contraception about a month ago as um, a sin. Now that might be something where somebody didn't fully realize its gravity. And so it might be lacking the full knowledge. My advice in a case like that is confess it anyway, even though you think it probably wasn't a mortal sin because you didn't realize it at the time, it's certainly something good to put forward and then add, I didn't, wasn't fully aware of it, right, that, of, of why it was wrong. Any unnecessary details yeah. of sin like that. Right. But let's say you commit fornication mm-hmm. and you use contraception. Would you have to confess both? It's probably a good idea. But in that particular case, the grave thing would graver thing obviously be the fornication, because it makes sense that you wouldn't want to irresponsibly transmit life in a, in a case where you're not um, prepared to um, receive it. Yeah. But yeah, sure. Yeah, that's not too much information, right? The too much information is when you say persons and, and circumstances and details that don't have anything to do with identifying the kind. Good. Anything else? Yeah, so I guess Father talked a little about what he says. So he, he says then the prayer of absolution after that. Um, I don't think we need to 
Yeah, so the confessor is bound to secrecy. What are the effects? The effects are the sins that we've confessed are forgiven. Now, they may have already been forgiven, right? You should think, so this, I think, can be a comforting thing, right? Some of you have to make a first confession for 40 years. Um, those sins were already forgiven if you had an act of perfect contrition for them. So even when you're doing your examination of conscience before you go into confession and you say you're sorry out of love for God, they're actually forgiven then. Does that mean you don't need to go to confession? No, it doesn't mean that. Right? It's still good because what you didn't do, you did the first part, but you didn't do the second and third. And that's kind of externalize it and, um, and have it presented to Jesus in a sacrament. And that's what gives extra graces. All right? So even though forgiveness can be anticipated by an act of contrition um, out of love, and it's still good to go to confession because it gives more effects. And those more effects are it gives special graces for the, to avoid the sins um, that I've confessed and to strengthen me with regard to those kinds of temptations. All right, you may find, and this is humbling, part of the human condition, that you frequently are confessing the same thing. All right, welcome to the human race. That, um, that is um, part of our condition. And so I frequently, frequently confess the same things. Um, and don't worry about boring the minister. <laughs> That's not what it's about. It's about giving to Jesus what's actually on our heart. Um, and I may know that, look, it's likely I'm going to fall into this again because I fell into it a thousand times in the past. That doesn't mean I don't have a good resolve because I'm resolving to try to avoid it in the future. All right, so the effects are forgiveness of sins, um, the um, graces to avoid it in the future, strengthening against future sins, and then also a forgiveness of the temporal punishment for sin. All right, what's that? Um, I don't have time to explain this. Um, but let me, here's the, sh I'll try and do this short. Sin has two effects. You probably, I've probably spoken about this before. The immediate effect of a sin, let's say it's a grave sin, let's say I committed adultery, is that turns me away from God because I, I can't help but know that that's not what he wills. And if I do it anyway, I can't say I'm doing it for him and I'm living for him. I'm living for myself. So the first thing of conversion has got to be turning back to him and saying, I'm sorry for that and I want to now live for you. That when we do that, that's an act of perfect contrition. Even in my examination of conscience, before I get to the confessional, I've already gotten my heart turned back. But if I am, so there can be, let's take murder as a bit example. If I committed murder, there are, there's a corpse out there, and I can't bring that corpse back to life. So even though my heart gets turned back to God, there's still a disorder in the world as a result of my sin. That's why the priest gives us a work of satisfaction. Now, fortunately, in satisfaction, so a good example of this, you break a, a child breaks a window, right, of the neighboring house, right, you're playing ball, and, um, and the child can't repair it, but dad can pay for a new window. In, in doing satisfaction, we can be helped. All right, who helps us in making satisfaction? Jesus. Right. This is why I maybe, you know, I make my confession for 30 years and the priest gives me three Hail Marys. It's too little, but Jesus is helping me and the whole church is helping me. Right. And so this is, um, 
I still have to do my three Hail Marys, but um, other people are helping me to do that. All right. um, I may go to purgatory, though, because it may be that I don't finish making satisfaction for my sins in this life. And that depends, above all, on my heart, not on actually on what I'm doing. Because some people who are, um, their whole heart is in it, their purification will happen here on earth. Others, probably most people, will have to continue it in purgatory. So penance helps us with that. The sacrament does. It helps take away some of the time in purgatory and helps us to um, do that here. Okay? I'll leave you with So bring in questions about confession next time, and then we'll look at anointing of the sick and marriage. In the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. We give you thanks, Almighty God for having given us the sacraments, sacrament of the Eucharist, and the sacrament of penance. We thank you through Christ our Lord, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.